the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us at seven minutes after four o'clock. James Blend is producing. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. Today we'll talk with columnist John Smirak. He's also an author. His uh, latest column in the stream, which you can find on the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page, U.S. immigration policy didn't originate from the poem at the Statue of Liberty. And he makes the case, uh, the... Uh, historic context of that, those statements and where we stand today in our middle age, if you will. We'll also talk with John Malcolm, senior legal fellow, vice president of the Institute for Constitutional Government and director of the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies on whether President Trump has the strong legal argument that he can declare a national emergency at the border and what that process might look like. We're also going to uh, talk with Larry Gadbaugh. He is the CEO of First Image. Sanctity of Human Life Week is approaching. We're going to talk with him about the challenge of living pro-life in the Pacific Northwest and the work they do with the Pregnancy Resource Centers in the Portland metro area. Now, there are PRCs in the Portland metro area, but there are PRCs throughout uh, the Pacific Northwest, and uh, we want to certainly pay tribute to the tremendous work that they do all across um, our region and across the country. Before we begin, we'll take a quick look. I guess this is beginning. We'll take a quick look at some of the developing stories today. The confirmation hearing for William Barr, President Trump's nominee to be the nation's next attorney general, took place today. It resembled an audition stage for Democrats hoping to run for president in 2020, but there wasn't nearly uh, the uh, performance that we've seen in uh, in other um, uh, Hearings for nominees, several Democratic senators thought to be potential presidential contenders in 2020, including Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, Amy Klobuchar, uh, were grilled bar earlier in the day. And although the 68 year old nominee is expected to ultimately win confirmation in the Republican controlled Senate, the questioning today affords Democrats another uh, major opportunity to send sparks flying and promote their own White House ambitions. That's not just a thing for the Democrats. It's what presidential hopefuls do on both sides of the aisle. Senator Lindsey Graham, the new chairman of the Judiciary Committee, will oversee the hearing and did. Barr's uh, views on special counsel Robert Mueller's Russia probe was a major topic. Uh, he uh, told the committee that he believes Mueller should be permitted to conclude his investigation and that the findings should be made public. We'll talk more about that later. And uh, the president is doubling down on border troops uh, and their mission, that being extended. The Pentagon today, or I should say on Monday, extended the military's mission on the southern border by eight months with the ongoing partial government shutdown as the president vowed to never, ever back down in his fight with Democrats over funding for a border wall. In a statement, the Defense Department said Acting Secretary of Defense Pat Shanahan had approved a December 27th request from the Department of Homeland Security to extend and expand the uh, troops' role. There are currently roughly 2,350 active-duty troops 
supporting the border mission, down from a high, le- a high number rather of nearly 6,000 late last year. The extension of the U.S. troops' mission at the border comes as new caravan of about 2,000, we're now hearing, um, began its perilous journey from Honduras to the United States border. They're not being well-received by Mexicans either as they anticipate the arrival. U.S. military support for, to the Homeland Security uh, mission, which was previously set to expire on the 31st of this month, is now slated to end on the 30th of September. In an address Monday at the American Farm Bureau Convention in New Orleans, the president said there was no substitute for a physical barrier along the southern border with Mexico and accused Democrats of playing politics in their refusal to negotiate. However, new polling suggests the president is losing the battle of public opinion with the shutdown in its fourth week and hundreds of thousands of federal workers missing their first paycheck under the shutdown. Now, the interesting thing is there are two questions. He wins on the wall question. He loses on the shutdown question. And the two are inexorably linked. So that would not be a win, uh, given the fact that the shutdown is linked to building the wall. Representative Steve King was stripped of his committee assignments uh, yesterday by his fellow House Republicans following bipartisan condemnation of his recent remarks on white supremacy and white nationalism. In a formal statement, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy said King's comments were beneath the dignity of the party of Lincoln and the United States of America. His comments call into question whether he will treat all Americans equally without regard for race or ethnicity. House Republicans are clear we are all in this together as fellow citizens equal before God and the law. In a statement of his own, King insisted that his comments had been completely mischaracterized and blasted McCarthy for what King called a political decision that ignores the truth. Now, we should also mention, and I'm looking for my notes, um, that it didn't end there. He was also, uh, he wasn't censured, but he certainly was condemned by his uh, colleagues in the House, and I'm not seeing my notes that specifically outline Um, What happened? But nonetheless, um, it has uh, gone beyond just simply losing his committee assignments. Well, a small white paneled room strewn with stuffed animals, makeup, accessories, panda backpack and mattress is believed to be the makeshift prison where Jane Kloss was held for 88 days before her miraculous uh, escape on Thursday. It's not yet known whether the 13 year old alleged captor uh, kept her solely confined to the room of his uh, remote home in Gordon, Wisconsin, for the three months she Uh, allegedly spent in his clutches or if she was only hidden away there when other people were in the area. But police said it was uh, a lair of a killer and kidnapper. Authorities uh, have recovered a shotgun that is consistent with the gun used in the October 15th killing of the parents of Kloss parents. Patterson is alleged to have blasted through the front door of their home, gunned down the parents and then took the uh, the young girl. The criminal complaint filed on Monday offered the most detailed account yet of the attack on the Kloss couple and the cruel conditions under which their daughter was held. British Prime Minister Theresa May made an urgent last push to swing lawmakers' support behind her seemingly doomed Brexit deal before the vote today. She failed, warning them at the time that its defeat risked torpedoing the UK's departure from the European Union and betraying the vote of the British people. Well, the vote was taken and she failed to convince. On this day in um, 2009, Miracle on the Hudson, U.S. Airways Captain Chelsea Sullenberger lands his uh, Airbus 320 on the Hudson River after a flock of birds disabled both engines. All 155 people aboard survived. And on this day in 1981, the police drama series Hill Street Blues premieres on NBC. That changed many things about how these kinds of programs 
are constructed. And on this day in 1967, the Green Bay Packers of the National Football League defeat the Kansas City Chiefs of the American Football League 35-10 to in the first AFL-NFL World Championship game, retroactively known as Super Bowl I. And in 1892, the original, on this day, the original rules of basketball devised by James Naismith um, are published for the first time in Springfield, Massachusetts, where the game originated. Imagine where we'd be without the rules of the game. President Trump on Monday dismissed the suggestion of a frequent um, ally, Senator Lindsey Graham, that he should reopen the government for a few weeks to encourage Democrats to continue negotiations over border security funding. I did reject it, Trump told reporters after the South Carolina Republicans plea for him to sign a three-week stopgap spending bill. I'm not interested. I want to get it solved. I don't want to just delay it. I don't uh, know if we are closer to a deal. Uh, This should be the easiest deal that I've ever seen. We're uh, talking about border security Who could be against it? Well, it's a rhetorical question, of course. We have drugs, we have criminals, we have gangs, and the Democrats don't want to do anything about it. The president continued, all of a sudden, it's immoral. It's immoral because one reason, because they know they're going to lose in the 2020 election. So he politicized uh, the statement at the end. Well, the partial government shutdown, the longest in U.S. history thus far, entered its 24th day on Monday. Uh, House Democrats have already passed a set of... um, Standalone bills that would fund several government agencies affected by the shutdown, including the Department of Homeland Security. But their proposal, which funds the government until February 8th, did not or does not include the five point seven billion dollars the president is demanding for the construction of a wall on the southern border. And he has thus refused to back it. Democrats have refused to approve more than one point six billion dollars for non-wall border security as well. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments. Later this hour, we'll talk with John Zmirak. Uh, his column in the stream asks the question, uh, or actually makes the point, that U.S. immigration policy doesn't originate from the poem at the Statue of Liberty. We'll also talk with John Malcolm, senior fellow, um, legal fellow, vice president of Institute for Constitutional Government and the director of the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. We'll talk about whether or not the president has a strong legal argument that he can, in fact, declare a national emergency at the southern border. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 21 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up shortly, we'll hear from John Zmirak from the stream. We'll talk about U.S. immigration policy that did not originate from a poem at the Statue of Liberty. We'll also talk with John Malcolm about whether or not the president has a strong legal argument. He doesn't uh, address the question in his column of whether or not the president should, but whether or not there's legal standing Uh, to um, declare a national emergency at the border. We'll talk with them coming up uh, later this hour. Well, congressional Democrats uh, today rejected the president's invitation to a lunch meeting at the White House to discuss border security. And the, um, well, the latest sign that both sides of the government shutdown standoff remain entrenched in their position with no compromise in sight. A senior administration official said that the president had invited Democrats to join his lunch with members of Congress in the Roosevelt Room shortly after noon. But moments before the session, White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders said in a statement that nobody took him up on the offer. The president has a proposal on the table that includes additional technology at ports of entry, allows minors from Central America to seek asylum in their home country, and physical barriers between ports of entry made of steel instead of concrete, she said. Today, the president offered both Democrats and Republicans the chance to meet for lunch at the White House. Unfortunately, no Democrats will attend. The president uh, looks forward to having a working lunch with House Republicans to solve the border crisis and reopen the government. So there were some 
alterations to what he was offering. It's time for the Democrats to come to the table to make a deal. She went on to say, she said, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer refused to negotiate. Well, the president, however, did not invite Pelosi, instead reaching out to rank and file Democrats, including centrist Democrats from districts where the president is popular. A Pelosi aide reportedly said she gave lawmakers her blessing to attend, telling her leadership team that other congressional Democrats can see what she and others have dealt with during the shutdown. Well, Pelosi predicted that after meeting with Trump, the lawmakers would want to make a citizen's arrest, according to the aide. But the lawmakers ultimately decided not to attend. The meeting boycott leaves unclear how and when both sides might negotiate a resolution to the partial shutdown, which is triggered um, when the president demanded nearly $6 billion for the border wall and Democrats refused and is now the, the longest in U.S. history. Now, as I mentioned, the Democrats have presented some options to Republicans, hoping that they will break break ranks with the president. But they apparently are not willing to break ranks with uh, ranks with the president, nor are the Democrats prepared to break (laughs) break ranks with their leadership. That's kind of a hard thing to get out. Well, President Trump's nominee for Attorney General William Barr told senators today during his confirmation hearing that he supports the president's call for new barriers along the U.S.-Mexico border while departing from the president's public stance on the Russia probe. Asked about the ongoing partial federal government shutdown, Mr. Barr said that I would like to see a deal reached whereby Congress recognizes that it's imperative to have border security and part of border security as a common sense matter involves barriers. Barr said a barrier system across the border is needed for stopping illegal immigrants and the influx of drugs, but he um, uh, pledged during uh, the confirmation hearing today to not interfere with special counsel Robert Mueller's Russia investigation, also asserted his independence from Trump on statements related to the probe. Under questioning, Barr said that he doesn't believe Mueller would be involved in a witch hunt. He knows him quite well personally, something that uh, the president has repeatedly argued. Barr said that he has known Mueller personally and professionally for 30 years, having worked together at a just at the Justice Department. He also said former Attorney General Jeff Sessions was right to recuse himself from the Russia investigation because of his role in the 2016 campaign, something that infuriated the president and helped lead to Sessions' removal last year. Barr also unequivocally said that he believes Russia attempted to interfere with the election and said he supports an investigation to get to the bottom of it. I will follow the special counsel regulations scrupulously and in good faith, and on my watch, Bob will be allowed to complete his work, Barr told the Senate Judiciary Committee. But Barr also staked out positions that will be welcomed by Trump, including his commitment to look into anti-Trump bias at the FBI during the 2016 campaign. The nominee said he was shocked by the anti-Trump texts that were famously sent between FBI employee Peter Strzok and Lisa Page. The White House expressed its support for Barr in a statement today uh, with Press Secretary Sarah Sanders telling Fox News that he is very honorable uh, doing what he believes and the president respects that. The president thinks he will be a great attorney general. Committee Chairman Lindsey Graham kicked off the uh, confirmation hearings for Barr by saying the Justice Department needs a uh, new leader, uh, the right, uh, rather, to right the ship over there. Uh, we've got a lot of problems at the Department of Justice, Graham said. Morale is low and we need to uh, change that. I look forward to this hearing. You will be challenged. You should be challenged. Barr is 68, said he doesn't really need the job. He's uh, taking it on the uh, uh, the prospect of doing it for the uh, sake of the country. He was nominated by the president to lead the Justice Department in December after Sessions resigned at Trump's request in November. Barr previously served as attorney general from 91 to 93 and his confirmation hearing 
nearly 30 years ago went uh, went off largely without incident. Well, during the hearing, Barr's past comments about the Mueller investigation attracted scrutiny, including an unsolicited memo uh, he sent to um, the Justice Department last year criticizing the special counsel's inquiry into whether Trump had sought to obstruct justice. Barr, as head of the Justice Department, would take over from acting Attorney General Matthew Whitaker and oversees uh, Mueller's work. The memo, there will be a lot of talk about it, as uh, there should be, Graham said. Ranking member Dianne Feinstein said the memo raises questions about Barr's approach to the Russia probe. Importantly, the attorney general must be willing to resist political pressure and be committed to protecting this investigation, she went on to say. Well, Barr sought to explain the memo, telling lawmakers he distributed it so other other lawyers, rather, would have the benefit of his views. The memo did not address or in any way question the special counsel's core investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election, Barr said, nor did it address other potential obstruction of justice theories or argue, as some have erroneously suggested, that a president can never obstruct justice. Democrats on the committee asked questions about his past relationship with the president. Barr acknowledged meeting Trump once in 2017, saying he made clear his uh, disinterest at the time in joining Trump. Trump's legal private legal team because I didn't want to uh, stick my head into a meat grinder asked by Illinois Senator Dick Durbin, uh, Durbin rather about the hypothetical of being pressured into doing something he disagreed with Barr replied I will not be bullied into doing anything that is wrong by anybody whether it uh, be editorial boards Congress or the president I'm going to do what I think is right end quote well Barr was introduced uh, by former Utah Senator Orrin Hatch today a former longtime member of the committee who um, retired and was replaced by Senator Mitt Romney this year. It's the first major Judiciary Committee hearing since the dramatic testimony last year during the confirmation of Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Several Democratic senators thought to be potential presidential contenders in 2020, including uh, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker and Amy Klobuchar, were among those questioning Barr. To be confirmed, Barr will need to, to garner a simple majority of votes in the Senate. Republicans currently hold 53 percent or rather 53 of the Senate's 100 seats. So his confirmation is all but assured. And the Supreme Court uh, yesterday rejected a challenge to the appointment of Matt Whitaker as acting attorney general. President Trump appointed him on November 7th, shortly after Attorney General Jeff Sessions announced that he was stepping down at the president's request. Whitaker had been serving as chief of staff to Sessions. Well, opponents of his appointment said that he was not qualified for the position because he had not been subject to Senate confirmation. Their vehicle for the challenge was a pending case against the attorney general who was set, who was Sessions when the case was filed in June. The uh, challengers asked the justices to uh, rule that the name on the case should be changed from to rather Rod Rosenstein, who they said is actually the acting attorney general. The Supreme Court case was originally brought by a Nevada man, Barry Michaels, who asked the uh, justices to rule that uh, the right to own a gun should not be taken away from someone convicted of certain nonviolent felonies. Well, on Monday, in a brief order, the court denied the motion to take Whitaker's name off the case and also said it would not hear the Michaels gun case. A similar challenge to the Whitaker appointment is pending in federal court in Maryland. The Trump administration has vigorously defended Whitaker's appointment, which will end relatively shortly with the confirmation of what is expected to be his uh, um, uh, predecessor. That's the person that came before. Well, you know what I mean. Anyway, so that uh, tenure will be quite short and will end quite soon. Well, a federal judge uh, today ruled that government employees who have been deemed essential can't 
cannot refuse to work without pay during the partial shutdown. U.S. District Judge Richard Leon denied a temporary restraining order that would have either forced the government pay workers or to pay workers, rather, or allow them the option to refuse to work while not receiving pay. Leon ruled that such an order would incite chaos and was against the public interest since it's unclear how many workers would choose to still go to work without pay. He also said it could put the safety of the public in jeopardy. The ruling comes after the judge consolidated three cases, making similar claims on the grounds that the government was violating the Constitution and forcing employees to work without pay. The three lawsuits uh, come from the National Treasury Employees Union, National Air Traffic Controllers Association, and a group of five federal workers. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll hear from John Zmirak on his column uh, that appeared in the stream yesterday. You can find and read that column if you'd like on The Georgine Rice Show Facebook page. John Zmirak, up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest, John Zmirak, brilliantly writes in his latest article in the stream that the United States immigration policy doesn't originate from a poem on the Statue of Liberty. The huddled masses plaque from the Statue of Liberty is not United States immigration policy. Well, he joins us today to talk about um, about that. The, the headline of his article is, Should We uh, Take Down the Huddled Masses Plaque from the Statue of Liberty? because it seems to be misunderstood as reflecting U.S. immigration policy. Mr. Zmirak, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. First, I want to say, I think Emma Lazarus's poem, The New Colossus, is beautiful. Absolutely. My grandparents on one side and great-grandparents on the other came to Ellis Island. I am the spawn of the huddled masses, as many of us are, okay? But that poem, it reflects a different period in U.S. history, okay? First of all, the statue itself is a statue of liberty, not hospitality, not diversity, not charity, not welfare, liberty. It was built by the French government and given to us as to, to signify that we were a model of liberty, self-government, self-reliance, to other countries in the world. The statue faces outward. It's a challenge to other countries to imitate America's good example of limited government, self-reliance, all those traditional Anglo-American virtues that we inherited from our British founders, okay? The statue, when it was built, was to represent that. Emma Lazarus had another take on it. She saw that it, the American embrace of so many refugees and work-hungry, hard-working people from all around the world was a beautiful thing. So she wrote this lovely poem. However, when she wrote the poem, we have to remember, there were, there were no labor unions. There are no work and safety regulations. We were a growing country. We had huge empty territories we just conquered from the Indians. We were paying people. We were bribing them, giving them land where they would just please, please start a farm in South Dakota. We had huge factories with people working for 10 cents an hour, children working, women, married women working, people working 12-hour days, no health and safety regulations, and there was no welfare state. With all of those things true, we could afford to take as many people as Europe wanted to send us because if it didn't work out, they went home. Do you know what percentage of Italian Americans, of Italian immigrants who came to America, which is a heck of a trip, they had to get on a boat, it took two weeks, how many, once they got here, it didn't work out and went home, 
one out of three. One out of three Italian immigrants went back to southern Italy to face rural poverty because it was too hard to make it in the United States. So our system was self-regulating. If you couldn't make it, you went home. Now we have this enormous welfare state. I call it the, the migrant motel. Immigrants come in, but they don't come out. It's like a glue trap. People who come here now, if it doesn't work out, they go on welfare. They go on public assistance. They go on Medicaid. They're still living better than they would working 60-hour weeks back in poor countries like Guatemala and Honduras. So we can't accept the huddled masses because now we've agreed to pay for their lives, to pay for their, 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 you know, their dentures and their braces and their operations. None of that was true when that poem was written. You write that I don't think Emma Lazarus herself would have expected the United States to go on nursing the same immigration policies a whole century later once it had become a middle-aged country, especially now that those policies eat away at our liberty, growing and growing the class of people dependent on the government, feeding ever more power to radicals who reject private property and even national sovereignty. That what was a, a emotive poem then and applied to what was happening at the time does not reflect the changing times and the changing needs of the country. That's right. I mean, for us to say we have to keep having open borders because of this poem, even though we're now a middle-aged country, it would be like me at age 54 insisting on going slam dancing because I still have some class records left over from the 80s. It's undignified. It's unfitting. We're now a middle-aged country. We don't have factories opening up all all over the place that need unskilled immigrants. But unskilled immigrants are what we're taking, both legally and illegally, because our system is set up based on nepotism, based on chain migration. You don't get in nowadays because of what you have to offer the country. You get in because your cousin or your brother or your aunt is already here. That's the system Ted Kennedy set up in 1965, basically in order to get more Irish into Massachusetts. That was the whole, his whole point. But it, it, the ripple effect has been we accept mostly unskilled immigrants. Like 60 or 70% are based purely on nepotism. Uh, a, a large percentage are high school dropouts. Well, what does that do for high school dropouts in America? Veterans, people who get out of prison, young people from the ghetto trying to form families. They're constantly subject to relentless competition by docile immigrants from other countries who are just grateful to be here. And what, is that, what has that caused? For the last 40 years, working class wages in America have been flat if you adjust for inflation. 40 years without a pay raise, ordinary Americans have been, have been suffering. And what happened in the same time? A million or more low-skill immigrants every year. It's not an accident. We continually hear from members of Congress who make reference to this poem as if it were U.S. national immigration policy. Are you hopeful that given the crisis, as the president described it on our uh, southern border, that a more serious approach to um, some of these underlying issues is is going to be debated and resolved? Or are you uh, skeptical, as I am, um, that it's useful politically and it's not likely that we're going to see any meaningful change in the near future? There's been a coalition of Democrats who want cheap votes and Republicans who want cheap labor. And that's why nothing happened in the first two years when when we had a Republican Congress and Donald Trump was not able to act on his primary campaign promise, building a wall and getting immigration under control. Um, I think now his his, uh, embracing the shutdown and talking about a state of emergency, it's a sign of desperation. And, And we are in a desperate situation. The Democrats 
are not behaving like patriots. They are behaving like political ward bosses who just want to stuff the country with as many poor people as possible so they can grow the welfare state and turn, flip one state blue after another. Soon, Texas will be a one-party Democratic state just like California. And then where are you going to go then? When, you can't, when, when Texas has turned into California, what, will we all flee to Oklahoma? It's going to be an ongoing flight of the middle class uh, like the death ball as we look for one jurisdiction that is not controlled by people who, who want the policies of Cuba or Venezuela. Well, it's not a very hopeful picture, but I'm hoping the uh, huddled masses who actually live in this country will rise up and demand a solution to this, uh, this growing problem. John Zmirak, thank, so you. thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. We appreciate it. John Zmirak is the co-author uh, with Al Parada of The Politically Incorrect Guide to Immigration. Uh, he writes at the close of his column, a poem that was suited to America when it was a vigorous teenager doesn't work so well now that it's frankly middle-aged. To make laws based on that poem is just as ridiculous as a 50-something man like me going out slam dancing just because he can still remember the lyrics to the to some Clash album. We need to act our age and retain a little dignity. So let's leave the plaque where it is, as we should, uh, Confederate memorials, as a relic of, for remembrance, not a roadmap to the future. You often hear politicians uh, appeal to the emotions of the American people by quoting a section of this, uh, this poem written by um, uh, Lazarus uh, many, many years ago. Uh, but as he points out in the headline, this is not... Um, the source of uh, U.S. immigration policy, the, uh, the plaque at the Statue of Liberty. I'm going to post this, uh, this column on the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page if you'd like to read it in its entirety. I think it's brilliantly uh, written, so I hope you will. We're going to take a break here in just a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, congressional Democrats today rejected the president's invitation to a lunch meeting at the White House to discuss, you guessed it, border security. And the latest sign that both sides of the government shutdown standoff remain pretty entrenched in their position with no compromise in sight. Well, the president has a strong legal argument that he can declare a national emergency at the border, so says my next guest. Regardless of which laws he relies on, if the president chooses to declare a national emergency under the National Emergencies Act, it is inevitable that someone with legal standing will file a lawsuit in federal court challenging him, and they'll probably look for a friendly forum in which to file those lawsuits. Well, joining us to talk about that is John Malcolm, a senior legal fellow, vice president of the Institute for Constitutional Government and director of the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure, Georgine. I've heard lots of different um, analysts suggest that the president has the authority. He doesn't have the authority. That that authority he does have is limited. For example, he couldn't seize property in order for the wall to be placed where it needs to go. Uh, But you argue that he does, in fact, have a strong legal argument. Um, Explain to us how the president uh, has the authority to declare a national emergency in this case. Sure. Well, anytime a president wants to act unilaterally, the question becomes whether he has legal authority to do it. And then you get to the normative question of whether he should do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the moment, he has not done it. He's continuing to try to negotiate, but he has, of course, declared that he believes that he can do it, and if necessary, he will do it. So the way he would go about doing that 
uh, is that he would declare a national emergency under the National Emergencies Act. The National Emergencies Act is a post-Watergate reform that was actually supposed to rein in somewhat the president's ability to declare a national emergency and to set forth a procedure about what he would have to do if he does so. So he could declare a national emergency. He would then have to send a notification to Congress about exactly what that national emergency is, what the scope of it is, and what he proposes to do. And then, and this is significant, he would have to cite what other statutory authority he is relying upon to do what it is he wants to do, in this case, to build a wall. So there are, according to the Brennan Center, 136 different statutes that are out there that talk about the circumstances and powers uh, that a president gets if he declares a national emergency. And there are several that appear to more or less fit the bill. So there's one involving the Immigration and Nationality Act that essentially says if the borders are being overrun by a huge influx of immigrants so that the system is not working, he has the ability to declare a national emergency and to tap into uh, an immigration emergency fund. And then there are a couple of statutes uh, dealing with the Department of Defense that say specifically if he declares a national emergency and in one case is going to use the armed forces and in another it says if he is or may use the armed forces, he can uh, tap appropriated but otherwise unobligated funds to engage in military construction projects in order to support the military. It's hard to say uh, exactly which statutory authority those or perhaps some other one that the president is going to rely upon, uh, but we'll see. Now, you point out in your column with the Daily Signal that the groundwork for a national emergency claim was laid on Tuesday when the president spoke and uh, gave a point-by-point argument in favor of the need for certainly Congress to act, but for a national emergency, a crisis at the the border. Yeah, he addressed several different uh, things. He talked, of course, about the drug problem. He said 90 percent of the drugs entering this country are coming over from the Mexican border. Uh, The White House has put out figures. Over the last year, there's been a 73 percent increase in fentanyl. That's 2,400 pounds of this deadly stuff. Uh, 38 percent increase in heroin and methamphetamine. He talked about the plight of the migrants who are are trafficked. The White House has put out a statistic that nearly 70 percent of them say that they have been assaulted in some form or fashion. A third of women say that they were sexually assaulted. And he pointed out that the coyote organizations that engage in this human smuggling are profiting to the tune of about $2.5 billion a year. He also talked about ICE agents and Customs and Border Patrol agents stopping literally thousands of known or suspected gang members, thousands of people that have a criminal record. And he spoke about uh, the mayhem that is wrought by those illegal immigrants who make it into the country. He said that over the last two years, 266,000 illegal immigrants have been charged or convicted with 100,000 assaults, 30,000 sex crimes, and uh, 4,000 murders. And then he also talked about how the, the strain that this is putting on uh, the system has been a 2,000% uh, increase in asylum claims over the last five years. Uh, 60,000 unaccompanied children, 161,000 family units arrived at our borders in the fiscal year, uh, last fiscal year. And there's a backlog in our immigration courts of nearly 800,000 cases. Mm. Certainly talks about a dramatically stressed system. 800,000. I mean, that's just staggering. 
Um, That's now, in your um, in your column, you write about laws that Trump might use to make his case. You you make reference to the Immigration and Nationality Act. It does give the president authority to tap into an immigration emergency fund, but that fund is insufficient. What are some of the other um, uh, things that the president might make use of to make his case? Well, I mean, he would have to look around the federal government uh, in order to find money the Congress has appropriated but hasn't otherwise earmarked or that hasn't already been obligated for some other purpose. So Congress, as you know, has passed laws in the past saying that a wall can be built, most notably the Secured Fence Act of 2006. There were 26 Democrats that Mm -hmm. signed on to that, uh, but they never appropriated any funds for that. So if he uses the Department of Defense Authority, for example, he would have to look at money that was appropriated for other military construction uh, projects. Uh, and he would divert those for the purpose of developing a wall. There may be other uh, funds that he can tap into uh, across the federal government, but he'd have to cite the statutory authority that gives him the the ability to tap into those funds. Now, you point out that uh, the courts will certainly um, hear a challenge from those in Washington, that the um, the challenge will probably be shopped to a favorable uh, judge, and that while historically uh, courts have been reluctant to second-guess a president, we've seen Uh, Under this administration, that has changed. What kind of uh, pushback are we likely to see? Well, you'd have to find somebody with standing in order to do it. You mentioned before uh, in your intro about eminent domain. So let's assume that there's a homeowner uh, along the Texas border or New Mexico border, and the government is going to say, okay, for this military construction project, we're going to seize your property under eminent domain. That property owner could go to court and say, well, you know, eminent domain for a public use under normal circumstances is fine, but here the president doesn't have the authority in order to seize my land in the first place. Or perhaps the House of Representatives as a body, obviously with just the Democrats voting in favor of this, might uh, authorize a lawsuit on behalf of the House of Representatives. That's what happened uh, with respect to a lawsuit against Eric Holder when he refused to turn over documents related to Fast and Furious. So some organization or individual is going to come up with standing to go into court to say that the president lacks the authority uh, to do this, that this is a manufactured crisis. He hasn't laid out a factual basis uh, to support this invocation of his national national emergency powers. And then we'll see what a court does. Typically, when it comes to things like national security issues, courts have historically been reluctant to intervene. They say that these are really political questions. They're not going to second-guess the president, and they'll leave it to the other branches, two branches of government, uh, to fight it out uh, and come up with a political resolution. But, of course, when it came to the travel ban, there were lots of courts out mm-hmm. there that were prepared to second-guess the president, and they entered nationwide injunctions, and the case wended its way up to the Supreme Court. Now, are we likely to see uh, uh, the case make its way up to the Supreme Court this time around? Uh, I think if the president does declare this uh, a national emergency uh, and a court stops it, uh, on, not in an individual jurisdiction, uh, but across the board, uh, that that is likely to be elevated very quickly, just as the travel ban cases were. Well, we'll certainly watch with interest. The president has certainly made reference to the fact that he does have the authority. As I mentioned uh, at the beginning of our conversation, Democrats uh, failed to uh, show up for a meeting with the president at the White House earlier today. So there, the stalemate continues. Something has to happen. The dam has to break at some point. Uh, what does that, whether that's a national emergency declaration or some action by Congress, we'll just have to wait and see. I appreciate your taking the time to talk with us. 
My pleasure, Georgine. Good being with you. You too. Again, John Malcolm is a senior legal fellow, vice president of the Institute for Constitutional Government and director of the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies on whether President Trump has a strong legal argument that he can declare a national emergency at the border. In his column, he also makes reference to the Congressional Research Service that says under the powers delegated by such statutes, the president may seize property, organize and control the means of production, seize commodities, assign military forces abroad, institute martial law, seize and control the transportation and communication systems, regulate the operation of private enterprise, restrict travel, and in a variety of ways control the lives of United States citizens. Again, we'll keep an eye um, poised to see what happens next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. I have with me in studio Larry Gadbaugh, who is the CEO of First Image, and we're going to talk about the ministry and work of First Image and the ministries uh, that they oversee. Uh, Larry, it's always a pleasure to have you with us. You've been working with the uh, with First Image for about 15 years. Is that right? Yeah, since, since 2001. Two, since 2001. That's more than 15 years. Yes, it is. Yeah. Um, but you also ministered for 15 years as a pastor of Grace Community Church in Gresham. You are a graduate of Multnomah Bible College. You received your MA from Western Seminary. You and your wife, Diane, sweet Diane, um, have five children. And we're just, who are probably grown-ups now, but yes. uh, five yeah. children. Uh, and we're just delighted to have you with us here today as we anticipate the Sanctity of Human Life uh, week that's coming up. So Welcome. Thank you. It's always great to be with you, Georgine. Now, I know most of our listeners are familiar with the Pregnancy Resource Centers, but let's talk about First Image. The name change may be less familiar, although I think most people are now up to speed. But why First Image? Well, we really wanted to tie our mission more directly into the truth about the image of God because of our conviction about the the truth that every individual conceived in the womb is uh, created in God's image with um, with his call to uh, receive his love and his truth and to respond to him in faith and uh, and to reflect him in the way that we treat each other. Mm-hmm. And so in loving our neighbors, uh, including those conceived in the womb and the women who bear them and, and all the others who are around that relationship, uh, we want to reflect that love of Christ for them. I love how the website explains uh, First Image. We believe that God's people are at their best when they respond with compassion toward those who are vulnerable, voiceless, or misled. We believe God has called us to serve the women in our city facing unplanned pregnancies, the children they carry, students who are in desperate need of transformation in their relationships and sexuality, and men and women burdened by the pain of past abortion. Um, This is not a political organization. It's not one that seeks to influence public policy, but simply extend the love of Christ into the lives of those who desperately need uh, fellowship, friendship, love, and grace. That's right. Because every other voice in our culture, every other public institution, um, doesn't have that kind of posture or message for them. Um, And so we believe that we have a unique and privileged opportunity to meet them where they are in the decisions they're making about their relationships, about their sexual, um, their sexual lives, and, and certainly in facing their pregnancy decisions. Now, I mentioned the Pregnancy Resource Centers, and I think First Image is probably best known uh, because of the work with Pregnancy Resource Centers, but there's also the HEART program and the Reality Project that really round out the work of um, First Image in ministering in our communities. Yes. You know, every pregnancy decision 
uh, is preceded by the way that uh, a couple views their relationship, views marriage, views sex, views uh, children, and all those kinds of things. So when someone faces an unintended uh, relationship, uh, unintended pregnancy, uh, it brings those views to a crisis. And so most of those who come into our centers um, are faced with a, a very difficult decision. And, uh, and so to give them the full information and to educate them and to give them all the alternatives uh, to abortion that, uh, and all the support and resources that they need to consider uh, giving birth to that baby is a great privilege that we have. Let's talk about the Reality Project, because that is an opportunity to speak to young people in their formative years as they're beginning to think about the important issues that will have major impact on their lives and their futures. Yes, we are invited into 25 different public high schools in greater Portland area, and uh, we get to go in and share with them a perspective on sexual integrity and really to appeal to them uh, what they really desire the for uh, lifelong relationships and really a countercultural message and perspective on their sexual relationships and the decisions that they're making. And we find that these students um, really respond. Mm -hmm. And it's a very interactive and a fun presentation. It's usually over three or four class periods over the week. And our our young uh, presenters just do a great job with that. And we find the students very uh, very responsive, and we're so thankful for that opportunity. You know, I so appreciate the the message that uh, this program brings to young people because most of most of them are informed by entertainment media. Yes, this is what happens. You can do this, this, and not, there's never a consequence to any mm-hmm. action. Uh, how do I have a mature relationship with someone? How do I protect my myself? How do I think about my future in light of how I conduct myself? These are not issues that easily lend themselves to, to entertain me. You're not going to find that online very easily. So this is a project in which young people speak to young people about these issues in a very compelling way. And it's had quite an impact. It has. I should say it's having quite an impact. It is. And, and because uh, we talk, we also talk about the nature of love, that love is giving, not just taking or Mm -hmm. receiving. And as basic as that is to many of us, um, that's a concept that needs to underline every other decision that these students are making. And so uh, we interact with them about that. Mm. Let's talk about the HEART program, because this is an opportunity to reach out to those, many of whom attend our churches. We work with them. We see them in the grocery store. Men and women who've been involved in an abortion decision. Obviously, a woman has had an abortion Mm -hmm. or a man has been instrumental in facilitating that abortion. This is a program that says... God's grace extends even in this area in a way that's liberating. Absolutely. The, the women that come to us often will say, you know, I have a faith in Jesus Christ. I believe that he forgives me for every sin except for except, one. Except, yeah. And it, I just can't see how God could forgive me. I can't forgive myself. I can't receive God's forgiveness for this abortion because I know how deeply it has wounded me. <clears throat> and uh, But by the end of that Bible study and that that interactive process in the heart groups, they come to to realize that God's grace, that Christ's death on the cross, that his love is so great that it reaches even the darkest corner of their soul. Mm. And that's a message, I think, for all of us, whether or not we've been involved in an abortion decision, 
the grace of God is far greater than we're capable of even fully appreciating. It, it, it speaks to the the value, the worth, the weight of the life and the death and the resurrection yes. of Jesus Christ. Yes. And of course, the Pregnancy Resource Centers we're mostly familiar with. For over 30 year, years, they've been ministering on our community. And I just want to say, it doesn't just happen. It takes a caliber of people who are driven and moved by love and compassion to give their time to develop an, an environment where women walk in and they're they're made to feel at home. There's not a, a judgment that stands between them and the person they're they're meeting for the first time. It's really an incredible ministry that receives absolutely no public support from any government institution. This is a reflection of the people of God extending yes. into our community the love of God. Yeah. The, you know, our volunteers and our staff are just, well, they're supernatural. They're, they're <laughs> just wonderful. It's such a privilege to serve with them. And, and these are, you know, suppo- sort of uh, normal people who just are so driven by the compassion of Christ. And, you know, after they're equipped and, and know how to, how to uh, draw out what uh, is really on the hearts and minds of these women who come in, and sometimes their, their partners come in with them, mm-hmm. and uh, they're able to educate them very objectively, and our nurses are uh, specifically uh, trained and uh, qualified to conduct the ultrasounds, we see that over... Nine out of ten of women who see their baby on the ultrasound awaken to the fact that this is a life that that I am to nurture and to give life to and and to and to either uh, prepare an adoption plan or to give birth and and raise this child as a as the child's parent. Mm, it's a remarkable thing, and I want to continue to talk about your amazing volunteers and the work they do. But we do need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment talking with Larry Gadbaugh, the CEO of First Image. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back 20 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. The Pregnancy Resource Centers in the Portland metro area saw 2,850 women last year. They provided 850 ultrasounds last year. And 94% of those women who received an ultrasound carried their child to term. There are 126 volunteers whose names you don't know and whose voices you're not going to hear today. But I really want to commend them. You know, you and I have a conversation. You are the CEO of the uh, of First Image that oversees all of the ministry that we've just talked about. But these 126 volunteers in all three of these areas are remarkable men and women. And while I don't know their names, I know that God makes note of the tremendous gift and sacrifice that they've made for our community. I just want to commend them and thank them for the work that they do. Um, let's talk a little bit about the Pregnancy Resource Centers. The ultrasound certainly is a major help in communicating the life of the child in utero. When a woman uh, is not sure she's pregnant, she walks through the doors, what happens? Well, they're greeted. They're given a uh, you know request for services, and, and the woman you know indicates uh, why she's there. And then she meets with a peer counselor, and if she uh, thinks that she's pregnant, she's given a, a, a pregnancy test, and uh, it's read by you know one of our nurses. And uh, depending on how far along she is and so forth, she's offered an ultrasound if the test is, is uh, positive. But we also, uh, our, our volunteers and staff are trained to educate her about, you know, uh, the development of child in the womb and, and uh, options in facing pregnancy. And, and so they're just to care for her mm-hmm. and to make sure that she, she knows she's in a confidential 
safe place in a place that will we'll love her and care for her regardless of what direction she goes in. Yeah, what she decides to do. You know, this is such an important issue. It's been around for such a long time. In fact, uh, with Sanctity of Human Life Week, we mark the Roe versus Way, Doe versus Bolton decisions that made abortion legal all across uh, the country. Um, and I think for many of us, uh, fatigue sets in. Mm-hmm. We know it's an important issue. We know it's vital. And yet it's been uh, an issue for so long. How do we avoid growing weary of doing well yeah, with well, regard some, to this issue in particular? Yeah, some people have called it compassion. Fatigue, fatigue yes. And I think we need to be renewed in our own hearts. Um, I think that the, you know, the polarization of our culture, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the political polarization and so forth has an effect upon us. And, uh, and I think that we in the pro-life movement um, need to, first of all, be renewed in ourselves to make sure that we are motivated by grace and truth, that we are renewed in our love for Christ and our love for one another, our love for our neighbor. And, um, and I know I need that. You know, I mean, I, get, I have the privilege of serving in this part of Christ's kingdom every day, and I need to constantly be renewed through abiding in Christ and walking by the Spirit, fellowshipping with his people, and in prayer. So I think that's, that's the basis of it, because otherwise I think we can become insulated, I think we can become cocooned, and, um, and I think that there are so many issues, because the culture has so radically changed yes. in the last you know, number of years, that um, I think the church is facing decisions. How do we engage with our neighbors and with the culture and not lose the gospel, and not lose, um, you know, our convictions. And I think that tension, uh, I think we're in that process. And I think that uh, it's a time in which we need to look fresh at the heart of God for our neighbors and for and for our community in a new way. Yeah. It seems to me, at minimum, uh, we ought to be prepared uh, to speak to someone who is facing the possibility of an unplanned, uh, unplanned pregnancy and provide them with a resource that can help them make an informed decision that they can live with. And we hope and pray that, that their child can live with as well. We ought to at least be prepared to do that. I couldn't put it better myself, Georgine. I totally <laughs> agree. And I think also to, uh, uh, to really believe that God's design for relationships and God's design for marriage is is for our very best, and uh, and to be able to communicate that, to think that through, and to be equipped to do that in our churches and in our families, mm-hmm. and so that we can appeal to them. What we find, like in the Reality Project, and in in the centers, when we appeal to the conscience, when we appeal to the longings of the image of God that that every person has, that the Holy Spirit can awaken them, and and plant a seed of light in the in the uh, shadows and in the darkness of their hearts that that has been saturating them from the culture. Mm. Now, Sanctity of Human Life Week is approaching. As I mentioned, I'm going to be in Guatemala with a ministry team during that week. But I want to challenge everyone who's listening today. I know when an anniversary approaches, the anniversary of Roe versus Wade, the same things are said. We recall the same events that took place, and the the temptation is. To simply shrug our shoulders and say, oh, really, again? Mm -hmm. But the truth is there are young girls and women in our communities who today have found out that, you know, I may be facing unplanned pregnancy. They don't know what to do. Their hearts are broken. Um, They may be pressured to to do something that their conscience really rejects. 
Uh, there are people around us right now, despite the anniversary that's coming, are going, who need help. And to extend the love of Christ in the way that the Pregnancy Resource Center is doing, in a way that you would not be ashamed of, you would be uh, grateful for, to extend his love into uh, into our community in ways um, that we just hope and pray for. This is an opportunity to really think about how can I come alongside and minister to the, the women in our community who need our help. That's right. I think the the more that we are each each of us that uh, believe these things and uh, believe what is best for our neighbors are equipped to do that. You know, the scripture says that we are compelled. Mm-hmm. We're, we're driven by the love of Christ. And uh, it's important that our love doesn't grow cold when the culture around us uh, is getting darker. So I would challenge you to consider doing one of a couple of things. Number one, would you commit to praying for the work of First Image? Maybe you want to focus your prayers on the work of the Pregnancy Resource Centers and the 126 volunteers that work with uh, First Image in the various areas I'm going to mention. The heart program for women who have experienced an abortion and cannot imagine that the grace of God could extend to them. There are men, uh, women in our community today who have experienced that grace because of the heart program, whose lives have been transformed and their relationships renewed because of that ministry. Would you pray for the heart program or for the reality project, the young people who put themselves in a position to speak to their peers, to other young people about the value of their of their bodies and to help them think through uh, some of the hard decisions they're going to have to make in the days ahead that will spare them the heartache that some of us as adults have experienced. Would you pray for First Image and these ministries that they do? Would you consider perhaps volunteering? Uh, there's, a, you know, I mentioned the 126 volunteers who are involved in these three programs. They could use 127 oh, <laughs> if yes. you if you have a desire uh, to volunteer. There are opportunities to do that, and I think you're also looking for a volunteer RN at this point. You can go to the website and learn more about all of that. Yeah. So I won't go into the details of it, uh, but consider volunteering. And then finally, you might want to consider coming alongside the uh, First Image, the Pregnancy Resource Centers, the Heart Program, the Reality Project, and. Uh, contribute to the the ongoing work um, that they're doing. When you and I are thinking about other things, they are faithfully serving in our community. When the door opens and someone walks through, they are thoroughly prepared to minister to that person, having no idea what the set of circumstances might be, but extending the love of Christ to them throughout that appointment. And it is a remarkable thing that there are people in our community who are serving even now to do just that. Thank you, Georgine. Now, the website is, and I'm on it right now, it's firstimage.org. Do you need the hyphen for yes. that? First-image.org. Uh, so you can check that out. They also have a Facebook page. You can check them out there. But I would challenge you to learn more about the work that they're doing and consider uh, some of the things I've mentioned, bottom line, uh, starting with praying for this ministry. How can we pray for you as you continue to lead this strategic ministry in our community? Well, I'm always praying, according to Ephesians 1, that God would grant me uh, a deeper uh, wisdom and spirit of wisdom and revelation to know mm-hmm. him better and and therefore to lead and to serve in light of Christ's work in the world. Well, let me just say personally what a blessing you are to me, how mm-hmm. grateful I am for you uh, leading this ministry and for taking your time to to speak with us today. You are always in my prayers, and I thank you so much. Thank you so much, Georgine. All right. First Image, keep them in mind, and the website first-image.org. Check it out, and let's pray. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. 
Well, the former top lawyer at the FBI has been under federal investigation for leaking to the media. A letter from the House Republicans revealed earlier today. The letter from GOP Representative Jim Jordan and Mark Meadows cited the transcript of a congressional interview with the former general counsel James Baker and his attorney last fall, where the probe conducted by seasoned U.S. Attorney John Durham was confirmed. You may or may not know Baker has been the subject of a leak investigation, a criminal leak investigation that's still active at the Justice Department. The lawyer uh, said, uh, speaking to lawmakers as he pushed back on questions about his client's conversation with reporters. Jordan and Meadows' uh, letter was sent to um, Durham, the U.S. attorney for, for Connecticut, and requested additional information about the probe later this month. As we continue our oversight and investigation work, we felt it prudent to write to you seeking an update without being apprised of the uh, uh, contours of your leak investigation and Baker's role, we run the risk of inadvertently interfering with your prosecution, prosecutorial plans, they wrote. Well, a source familiar with the U.S. attorney's investigation said that they believe the investigation of Baker remains open, um, adding that they understand it began during the Obama administration and not in the course of the Russia investigation. Well, the transcript of the closed-door interview and the letter do not include details explaining why the investigation is being let out of the Connecticut office. The status of the investigation is not publicly known. But the disclosure marks the latest confirmation of a leak investigation involving FBI figures who have since left the Bureau. Well, last year, former FBI Director uh, Andrew McCabe saw his leak case referred to the U.S. attorney in Washington, D.C. McCabe was fired for lying to federal investigators about his role in a media leak regarding the Clinton Foundation on the eve of the 2016 presidential election. Um, Baker is also subject to a media leak. Well, the letter from the GOP lawmakers cited other concerns that rose uh, as a part of uh, their own investigation when Republicans control the House. The committees learned that in some instances, high-ranking GOJ and FBI officials, including the FBI General Counsel James Baker and Department of Justice Associate Deputy Attorney General Bruce Orr, took the self-described unusual step of inserting themselves into the evidentiary chain of custody. Documents reviewed uh, indicate that Orr became the back channel uh, between Christopher Steele, author of the controversial and uh, unverified anti-Trump dossier and the FBI after he was uh, fired by the Bureau for lying about his contact with the media. According to a, ju- a January 2018 memo, so a year ago, by House Intelligence Committee Republicans on uh, Government Surveillance Practices, Steele was suspended and then terminated as an FBI source for what the FBI defines as the most serious of violations, an unauthorized disclosure of his relationship with the FBI in an October 30th Mother Jones article. Well, according to the department uh, website, that's the Department of Justice. Um, Durham is a seasoned prosecutor who has been tapped by Republicans and Democrats to handle high-profile national controversies. Uh, Durham has held various positions in the District of of, uh, Connecticut for 35 years, prosecuting organized and violent crime, as well as public corruption. From 2008 to 2012, he also served as the acting U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Virginia, where he investigated the destruction of CIA interrogation tapes of senior al-Qaeda operatives. And prior to that, he reviewed alleged criminal wrongdoing by FBI personnel in Boston connected with the Whitey Bulger case. The FBI did not comment uh, with more details on this pending case. Also, the House of Representatives formally rebuked Iowa Republican Representative Steve King today, overwhelmingly passing a resolution of disapproval for comments he made about white supremacy. 
Even King voted for the measure, though he strongly objected to GOP leaders stripping him of his committee assignment a day earlier. The final vote was 424 to 1, with only uh, Democratic Illinois Representative Bobby Rush voting no. Rush said he wanted to censure King instead, a stronger but still largely symbolic step. As with any animal that is rabid, Steve King should be set aside and isolated, Rush said, in introducing his censure resolution. The resolution that passed today states that the House once again rejects White House, or rather white nationalism and white supremacy as hateful expressions of intolerance that are contradictory to the values that define the people of the United States. The text of the resolution does not um, uh, explicitly criticize King personally. The condemnation of the comments made by King, long a controversial figure in the House, has been swift and bipartisan and might not be over yet. Um, expulsion would be fine, says uh, Democratic South Carolina Representative James Clyburn, who drafted the disapproval measure and said after the vote. So that uh, may also be taken up. And a federal judge has ruled against um, the citizenship question on the census. Uh, that's going to be taken. The federal judge in Manhattan ruled today that the Trump administration's decision to add a citizenship question to the 2020 census is unlawful. In his ruling, Judge Jesse Furman of the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York said Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross' decision to add the question to the census was arbitrary and capricious and enjoined the administration from including it on the questionnaire. Furman, an Obama appointee, said Ross violated a statute that requires him to collect data through the acquisition and use of administrative records instead of through direct inquiries on a survey such as the census. Ross announced in March that he was uh, granting a request from the Justice Department to reinstate the citizenship question on the uh, uh, decennial um, uh, population count to help the agency better enforce the Voting Rights Act. The decision led to a flurry of lawsuits across the country. In his 277-page ruling, Furman called Ross's violation of the Administrative Procedures Act egregious. Finally, uh, uh, once again, the federal judge has ruled against the Trump administration's plan to add a citizenship question to the 2020 census. And British Prime Minister Theresa May suffered a crushing defeat today as Parliament overwhelmingly rejected her Brexit deal with the European Union, a defeat that places the future of Brexit in doubt and intensifies calls for May's ouster via a general election. May's withdrawal agreement was voted down 432 to 202, the largest defeat for a prime minister in the history of the House of Commons. May was expected to lose, but the extent by which she lost was significant and marked a devastating blow for her leadership and her ability to to go back to Brussels and negotiate further concessions. May acknowledged that her deal was rejected by Parliament, but added, tonight's vote tells us nothing about what it does support. Jeremy Corburn, who's the leader of the opposition Labor Party, immediately tabled a motion of no confidence in the government, which is likely to be debated on Wednesday. Should that pass, it could eventually lead to a snap general election in another, or rather if another government is not formed within two weeks. Her governing principle, if uh, delay and denial has reached the end of the line, uh, Corbyn uh, told the House of Commons after the vote, she cannot seriously believe that after two years of failure, she is capable of negotiating a good deal for the people of this country. The most important issue facing us is that the government has lost the confidence of this House and this country. What happens next is unclear. Britain is scheduled to leave the bloc at the end of March, currently with no deal, something that many MPs on both sides of Parliament, including May, have said would lead to significant disruption. Some MPs, particularly those who 
uh, voted to remain in the EU in 2016 have called for Britain to delay its departure or hold a second referendum. May is also likely to face significant pressure from her conservative party to step aside, particularly considering the margin of her defeat, which would normally lead to a prime minister's resignation. But May, having survived a vote of no confidence from her party in December, is protected from being ousted from her own party until December of 2019. It would seem unlikely that unlikely that um, many, if any, uh, Tory MPs would back Corbyn's uh, motion of no confidence and the Democratic Unionist Party or DUP Mays uh, coalition allies said that the party would back her in Wednesday's vote. But the headline, British Prime Minister Theresa May suffers a devastating defeat on key Brexit vote. And again, that uh, departure is scheduled to take place in May. I'm sorry, in March. Um, uh, In our next segment, we'll tell you a little bit about what's coming up uh, later in the program. We're also going to take a look at a uh, research survey that LifeWay has conducted, what they have to say about why young adults are dropping out of church, which is rather interesting. They make the point that large numbers of young adults who frequently attended Protestant worship services in high school are dropping out of church. Michael Schwab of Nashville, Tennessean, uh, conducted the the, uh, study. Large numbers of young adults... uh, are leaving. Two-thirds say that they stopped regularly going to church for at least a year between the ages of 18 and 22, but many are returning. That means the church had a chance to share its message and the value of attending with this group, but it didn't stick. That's a quote from Scott McConnell, executive director of Lifeway Research. We'll tell you more about that when we come back in just a moment. Also want to remind you that Mission Connection is coming up this weekend. It is free of charge, as has always been the case. It's sponsored by Uh, dozens of area churches. Uh, You must register, however, uh, in order to attend, and you can do that online at missionconnection.com, and that's spelled with an X, missionconnection.com. The theme this year, worth it. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, tomorrow on the program, as we focus our attention on the approaching Sanctity of Human Life Week, we're going to talk with Lois Anderson. She is Executive Director of Oregon Right to Life. Sanctity of Human Life Day is approaching, the March for Life, uh, to which he will be attending. Uh, And the Oregon legislative agenda will be the subject of our conversation that's coming up tomorrow on the Georgine Rice Show. And then on Thursday, we will uh, join our friends from Cross International for our annual Radiothon, which gives you an opportunity to take a brief glimpse of what's happening in a particular part of the world and how you can make a real difference. So we're looking forward to sharing a number of compelling stories with you Thursday for our Cross International Radiothon. On Friday, Mission Connection. We're going to be broadcasting live from the location at Rolling Hills Church, as we have for many, many years. In fact, it might be from the very beginning. We'll have to go back and check the records on that. But we'll be broadcasting live from Rolling Hills Church, where Mission Connection begins on Friday. And we hope to see many of you there. I've also been invited to MC this year, so I'm looking forward to a productive weekend, reflecting on opportunities that we have to engage in missions, whether that's here at home or abroad. Um, as well as find encouragement as we reflect on uh, some of the amazing things that God is doing abroad. So we'll look forward to broadcasting live and bringing uh, to KPDQ listeners uh, interviews with folks who will be presenting workshops at Mission Connection. Uh, You can attend Mission Connection for free. That has always been the case. It's sponsored by area churches, but you must register to pre-register, I should say, 
pre-register to attend. And you can do that at the website, missionconnection.com. And that's connection spelled with an X rather than a T, missionconnection.com. This year's theme is worth it. Hope to see you there. Well, large numbers of young adults who frequently attended uh, church services, Protestant worship services in particular in high school, have dropped out of church. Two-thirds of young people say they stopped regularly going to church for at least a year between the ages of 18 to 22, according to a new LifeWay research survey. Well, that means the church had a chance to share its message and the value of attending with this particular group, but it didn't stick. That's a quote from the executive director of LifeWay Research, Scott McConnell. That's a lot of folks saying, no, that's not for me, or it's not for me right now at that age, he said, that young age, he says. Well, LifeWay Research released its student dropout survey this week, well, today, in fact. The Nashville-based entity interviewed 2,002 U.S. adults uh, ages 23 to 30 who attended a Protestant church two times or more a month for at least a year in high school. The interviews were conducted in September through October of 2017. Surprisingly, we're just now hearing the outcome. Well, LifeWay Research is a ministry of LifeWay Christian Resources, which is the publishing arm of the Southern Baptist Convention. Well, the high dropout didn't uh, surprise Pastor Chris Brooks, who leads the Kairos Congregation in Brentwood Baptist Church in Brentwood, Tennessee. The majority of those who attend Kairos Tuesday night service are between 22 and 29. There is a substantial number of people in this age demographic who, for whatever reason, decided that The church is no longer integral to building their faith or their faith is no longer integral to them. He loves young adults. Uh, They are selfish, but also trying to figure out who they are and what they want to do and be, Brooks says. It leads to lively and challenging discussions at church, which he welcomes. It's identity and purpose, which are common themes throughout the Bible. Uh, And they're becoming aware uh, of uh, do they like the God uh, that they um, were given growing up. Well, the 66% who said they stopped attending church regularly as young adults cited a variety of reasons for leaving. The survey listed 55 and asked them to pick all that applied. On average, they chose seven or eight reasons, McConnell, uh, the researcher said. The reasons fell under four categories. Nearly all, or 96%, cited life changes, including moving to college, work responsibilities that prevented them from attending. 73% said church or pastor-related reasons led to them leaving. Uh, Of those, 32% said church members seemed judgmental or hypocritical, and 29% said they did not feel connected to others who attended. 70% named religious, ethical, or political beliefs for dropping out. Of those, 25% said they disagreed with the church's stance on political or social issues, while 22% said they were only attending to please someone else, in most cases, their parents. And 63% said student and youth ministry reasons contributed to their decisions not to go. Of those, 23% said that they never connected with students in student ministry, and 20% said the students seemed judgmental or hypocritical. We're tapping into a lot of different feelings and logistical things as well, says the studies um, leader, pointing out that uh, this age group is often in a time of transition. But leaving was not an intentional decision for many. It just sort of happened. Or those who did drop out, 71 or rather of those, 71 percent, they said they did not plan on it. A statistic um, like that says, wow, we need to help those young people plan ahead. Um, Those who left are not... uh, out of reach, the experts also discovered. At Iowa State University, it takes students to um, reach other students with the gospel. Uh, the associate director of the Salt Company, which is a Southern Baptist ministry, 
on the Ames, Iowa campus, we have found that discipling and equipping our student leaders to reach out to their peers has been probably the most effective form of ministry. They really can do it, give them courage and just boldness to just relationally welcome people in. Well, McConnell, the study's uh, lead researcher, doesn't think those who have left between the ages of 18 and 22 are out of the church's reach forever. When the 66% who said they left picked reasons for leaving, only 10% said they dropped out because they stopped believing in God. Some who stopped attending church had already returned. At the time of the survey interviews, 31% of those who had dropped out as young adults said they were currently attending twice a month or more. 39% said they were attending church once a month or less, and 29% were not going at all. I think the church should continue to reach out to them and be sharing the news of the gospel to have a relationship with God, but also to have a relationship with the church, McConnell said. For many of these young people, they haven't completely rejected the church. They may just be attending less and thinking that's okay. So kind of an interesting uh, look at a survey on young people leaving the church. And I know periodically there are these kinds of surveys um, that tell us one thing or another about what motivates young people to walk away. And I think most of us understand some of the general uh, reasons, and there's not too much surprising on this particular survey, but I thought I would share with you the latest from uh, this particular group, LifeWay. Once again, we'll be broadcasting live on Friday from Rolling Hills Church, Mission Connection 2019. We invite you to uh, to join us there. The theme this year is Worth It. Friday uh, and all day Saturday, you can learn how to get involved with missions through our uh, hundreds of, uh, rather, hundred workshops and missions exhibits. Uh, featured speakers this year, Luis Palau, York Moore, Nick Ripkin, founder of Global Hope, Heather Mercer. And you can go to the website, missionconnection.com, to learn more about them and all the workshops to pre-register, which is required. But the conference, of course, is free. I have the opportunity to uh, broadcast live on Friday from 4 to 6, and then we'll remain for the the uh, rest of the conference as I have the opportunity to MC. So go to kpdq.com or the KPDQ mobile app to sign up and find out why getting involved in missions is worth it. I want to thank James Blind for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.